So hello, welcome to the Autocar podcast or uh, Autopod or whatever you want to call it. This is the pilot episode zero. And if you like cars, if you like the car industry, this is the outward looking relevant car focused podcast for you. It is basically a car program. And if you're hearing this one, uh, maybe it can't have been that bad. So joining me is Rachel Burgess, uh, Autocar's deputy editor. Hello. Hello. Right, what have, we got, what have we got this week? And indeed, every week or however often we do this. We're going to have some regular slots with news and analysis of the week's big stories and then we'll have a big interview. So basically every episode will have some kind of focus or theme. Episode zero, that's this one, is all about the Autocar Awards. We've got some great exclusive interviews and views coming up from the likes of um, Bentley's boss Adrian Hallmark and Volvo's CEO Hawkins Samuelson. So these are some of the most influential people in the industry. Hawkins great, isn't it? Have you... Have you yeah. Have you, have you met him much? Yeah, um, I thought the last time I was like, but yeah, I had spoken to him quite a bit. He's just a very, he's a very cool cat. Yeah, totally. The, um, the nice thing is at the end of this, I will play through the end of this interview later. Steve says, "Are you, are you, you know, are you a workaholic?" And he's like, "No, I don't, I don't think I work that hard." Oh, really? He's really relaxed. Yeah, he's really cool. But he's a he's a car a car bloke, not but not petrol head. But anyway, it's yeah, good, I think it's a really nice pre-record. Oh, is interview it? Yeah. With him. Yeah, the, the whole thing is really long, but. Um, yeah, I always get the impression that he's not a petrol head in the way that someone like Tobias Merz is. You mm. know, he's like he's also interested in the industry as well, and, yeah, and he's exactly. not diehard. Yeah. So the 2020 Autocar Awards, sponsored by Instavolt, would have been live, but unsurprisingly, they're not. Mm. But before we get to that, um, let's talk about some of the most recent releases and news. These are the biggest news stories and drives from recent times that you might see in this week's mag or in the last few weeks. So this week. Uh, our biggest drive is the Volkswagen ID3, which is going to be the biggest drive for quite a long time, I think, isn't it? It's, a, it's quite a... It's huge. What, what, else, what else is big this year? Land Rover Defender, ID3, Golf. new Golf. You know, they're the, the, land, you know, the benchmark vehicles of the year, I suppose. So the ID3 we've driven before in prototype form, but not in its finished form, which is now what Greg Cable, our European correspondent who lives in Germany and has actually been keeping us pretty well equipped for his drive, hasn't he, for the last thankfully. couple of months? Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> whilst we've all been unable to. He's been in a lot of things. So the ID3 has been fairly long delayed. It cost 8 billion quid to develop. And it could be the car to make us forget Dieselgate. I think that's the, you know, that's the, that's the hope. But it is fronting Volkswagen's third, what did they call it, third era or something like that? Where the first era was Beetle. The Beetle, second, second was Golf. Golf, and this is yeah. third era. So this, is, this spearheads that. So at the moment, we've driven a 201 horsepower version which is the first that will come to the UK 148 brake horsepower models will follow and what's interesting about it isn't it that sometimes you just buy an electric car you just get an electric car and that's and that's it but what they've done is put different batteries in it different power outputs in it so you can have a 48 58 or 77 kilowatt battery uh, so in a way it resembles a conventional car lineup you know just you, you, doesn't it you know you've got your, your model range that goes all the way through so there's different range capacities this one that greg has tried is a 58 kilowatt battery it's superbly refined says greg there's no not 60 mile an hour time but six or so seconds is likely like a lot of evs it's very brisk off the line feels lighter than it is which is interesting and because the motor's at the back you can have quite a tight turning circle so greg's given it four stars it's costing 33 grand after the government grant which would be quite interesting to see what happens on that, if mm. at all, if there's a scratch scheme or whatever. The only thing that I find is a bit strange about it is that 
bigger batteries can charge at up to 125 kilowatts, but that's optional. And I wonder if, as you introduce a new powertrain to buyers who are not used to it, trying to convey that it's important or, it, or it's not important, or whether you do it, what does it mean to residual values if you don't spec the 125 kilowatt charger down the, you know, down the line, two years down the line? Well, this one's got the big battery, but it can only be charged at 100 kilowatts, and this one's got the medium battery. That I wonder if that's like, I don't know, I just have a bit of a, I just think they should just, they should all just charge on the maximum thing. They should be consistent. Sense? Yeah. Yeah, but then I also think that there's very few 125 kilowatt chargers, and I know that there's more coming, mm. but even in two or three years, I wonder how widespread they will be. Yeah, so then you think, could that affect RVs the other way? Don't know. Yeah, it, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, interesting to see anyway. Anyway, the arrivals are what? Kona, E-Nero, Robert E-Nero, Nissan Leaf? And it goes on sale September. It'd be interesting to see how people who are not EV conversant at the minute will take to a to an EV from mm. a standalone EV from the world's, not the world's, quite the world's biggest car manufacturer, are they? Third, but they're, I think. they're pretty, mm. pretty well represented in the UK, aren't they? I've, I've always thought that the ID3 will bring it to the mainstream. I know we've been saying about bringing it to the mainstream yeah. for years, but I just think the average car buyer that I know will become a lot more aware of it than um, they are of the, th the sorts of EVs we're aware of because yeah. we're living and breathing this stuff. You know, my good friend is looking for an electric car because she's moving and she's like, what electric cars can I buy? And she, I mean, she genuinely can't name one. So, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, so, yeah, so I wonder if this is a, a watershed slash landmark well, I think it might be. I, I'm fascinated to see how, you know, I guess it would take two years to really kind of gauge success in terms of awareness and sales. Mm. And, and obviously it's probably affected by coronavirus like everything. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting time for it. Yeah. Second review uh, this week then. I've been, is one of this one from me, I've been driving the Ferrari F8 Spider, which is the uh, open top version of the F8 Tributo, which is in turn, effectively, a heavy facelift of the 488, so it still sits on the 458 platform, which is a car from the turn of the decade. So I think Ferrari usually turns over their platforms once every other model, but this one they've extended it a third time because there is a thinking that when this car is replaced, it will have a downsized V6 hybrid rather than a V8 with turbos. I think it's I think it's great. They've driven it in the UK, not driven it on track anywhere, but even on the road. And this is the weird thing for a car with 710 horsepower. You know, it's really good fun on the road at sensible speeds. You don't have to be completely up it to be enjoying it. It's just entertaining and engaging and responsive all the time. I think there's less turbo lag from its engine than there is in say McLarens and the Porsche GT2 RS. It's not as whip crack responsive as a Lamborghini Huracan, but it you know it, it rides sweetly, it steers nicely, you get loads back all the time, and I think there's quite a lot to be there's quite a lot you've got to say for that. It's it, given that ninety five percent of the time these will be driven as as road cars, unlike I think a, unlike a McLaren which has got a carbon tub, whereas the Ferrari is aluminium. When you take the roof off the McLarens, you can't tell that you know the, the chassis stiffness is gone at all. I think you can tell ever so slightly in the Ferrari. You've got a slight shimmy in the rear view mirror, which is not quite as stiff. But I think it's still the most desirable and the most exciting mid-engine supercar 
of the moment, I think most buyers will spend probably 250 grand on it after they spent 30, 40 grand on options. But uh, I think if I, if the numbers came in, it would probably be B, I'd go for the coupe, but it would probably be B, new supercar, I'd apply, I think. And that is it for the week's reviews. On to something slightly less exciting than Ferrari, but very interesting. Um, synthetic fuel. So we know that car makers have put billions of pounds, euros into electrification over recent years. Um, but there's a few that are quietly working on synthetic fuels too. So Mazda are developing microalgae, which could eventually be used as a synthetic fuel. And McLaren have said that they are developing um, a kind of prototype car that will be powered by synthetic fuel. Mm. So there's a few things going on. And this week, Fuels, Euro Fuels Europe, which is the voice of European oil refineries, so they're basically speaking for most oil refineries, okay. um, have started calls sort of push for synthetic fuels and to get legislators to change the way they approach things. Um, so rather than emissions being measured just at the tailpipe, they'd be measured well to will, which right. obviously is not so advantageous for electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, and their idea is that by pushing it to legislators that they'll, they'll then get investors on board because they want to scale up a manufacturing plant by 2025 and they reckon in the next decade they need 30 or 40 billion euros to do that so it's quite a decent amount um, and actually synthetic fuels probably are far better used in aviation or shipping or heavy duty transport yeah but they sort of foresee that by leading the automotive industry should lead it because uh, and I quote the sector is already heavily regulated and price signals already exist this market will then enable synthetic fuels to become competitive. So that's why they're pushing the road transport angle first. So when they say when they say price signals, what are the, what 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 is a price signal? Is that is that there are subsidies in some areas, or there are some taxes in some areas that, that don't exist in other sectors? Is that what they're on about? Do you think? I th it's a good question. Um, I feel like they they might also be talking about it in reference to EVs because. In, despite the fact they're completely different um, technologies, the sense that you know you're looking at the market and how the markets change with new technologies in a way that ah, uh, gotcha. That aviation and shipping haven't been able to do because yeah. you can't run a ship on electric. Yeah, gotcha. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. That's my. So you can't you can't give a competitive price for synthetic fuel because actually you just buy bunker oil to fill a ship with, and that's yeah, that's much I mean, cheaper, I yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's just really exciting, and I think fuels Europe's point is that they're not trying to say EVs are rubbish, forget about EVs. Actually, mm. these things should complement each other to help the future become more green. You know, it's not, you know, they both have pros and cons. And it's just that maybe we shouldn't just be thinking completely down one road, but yeah. also considering others. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, people will presumably, if you say that somewhere, people will say, well, they would say that. It sounds like... Yes, it sounds absolutely. Like it, it sounds like it could be quite a contentious issue, right? Is that, is that fair? Well, yes, because I tweeted this story that I wrote about it and I got lots of EV evangelists quickly piping up saying they would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah. And also sort of, um, you know, a fair point about how when um, biofuels were used in diesel that, that came from palm oil, which is not sustainably yeah, sourced. Sure. And so what's crucial here is that, that, that synthetic fuel production is from sustain, sustain, sustainable sources. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's... I'm mindful of taking it with a pinch of salt because it is oil the voice of oil refineries. Mm. But, you know, I do, as, as I've mentioned, Mazda and McLaren, you know, it does seem to genuinely have its place. 
Um, and you know, on the other on the other side, I was talking to the R and D boss at Merck, at Merck recently, and he didn't really have any faith in it. He was like, "It's got to go to aviation first. If we if it gets to us, it won't be for the next decade." So he's oh, the other side of it. So yeah, oh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's really yeah, interesting. Because I, I spoke to Felix Broutigan, who's the Jaguar Land Rover chief. I think he's chief marketing officer, but I, I he's he's got an engineering background as well. Yeah, and he's he said if you appro- if you approach it from sustainability, BEVs are your thing for passenger cars. But yeah, like you said, like you said, for for, for aviation, for shipping, for trucking, things where batteries are not necessarily you know you've got to haul a lot of stuff, you can't haul a battery along mm. with it. <laughs> and he and he was um, yeah he thought that synthetic fuels or biofuels they're not are they the, they're not exactly the same. Like you say, biofuel suggests it's grown from a plant crop that could be used for something else. I Which think biofuels can be a source of synthetic fuels, but I'm not sure not in sure. terms of the sustainability of the sourcing. Obviously, that's crucial for this to be credible. Yeah. Um, but you can also get it from e-fuels or um, carbon storage systems. So there's quite a lot of sources that you can get synthetic fuels from. Gotcha. Or microalgae, turns out. But okay. uh, yeah. that's too scientific for me. Um, on to some metal. Um, mm. We haven't seen many new cars recently sadly because we've all been in lockdown but there have been a few reveals in the last couple of weeks so it's nice to see the industry up and running again um so citroen's revealed its new c4 hatchback the last c4 hatchback went off sale a couple of years ago but they've also still been selling the c4 cactus which is a kind of hatchback um Mm. that you know has had a niche following but it's never really gained major traction so this new model replaces both those cars, the old C4 and the C4 Cactus. And it's called a hatchback by Citroen, but it definitely looks a lot like an SUV. Yeah. Um, the CEO said to me recently that, you know, it is a hatchback, but they wanted it, the intention was to bridge a gap between um, hatchbacks and SUVs because obviously they want to capitalise on the demand for SUVs, which isn't slowing down yet. Um, but I'm sure they also don't want to cannibalise their own SUV sales of cars like the C3 Aircross and the C5 sure. Aircross. Um and when it goes on sale, which is very early next year, you'll be able to get fully electric, petrol or diesel versions. Um, and it's on the same architecture as some of its sibling brands like Peugeot. So it sits on the same platform as the electric 208, um, okay. which means we kind of expect a range of about 200 miles uh, when it comes out. Oh, cool. And it's interesting that, that, so that small platform is battery electric. Petrol or diesel, but not plug-in. Is that that's right, isn't it? Yeah, and then and the then, big platform yeah. is the plug-in version. Exactly. That's I wonder if the because um, Peugeot three hundred eight they weren't last time I spoke to them. They haven't decided which whether it was on the big or the small platform. But if the C four is on the small one, maybe makes sense. That would be too. That would be too. It's interesting that they've got a lot of stuff coming on those platforms with Alpha mm. Romeo in the group. And yeah, I'm really excited to see well. what Alpha will do. Yeah. Um, yeah. With their EVs, it's funny. Is it? It's sort of, I guess this, you know, looks like an SUV, but doesn't have, presumably, all of the frontal area drawbacks in terms of fuel consumption and drag coefficient and yeah, stuff like that. It looks like an SUV, but isn't. Is that sort of what they're thinking? It's really hard to tell. You know, when you see a picture of a car and then you see it in person, and it can actually look quite dramatically different. Yeah. And I'm still find that amazing after all these years. <laughs> like you're just like, how? Um, so I've only seen the pictures, and you know, it's not. It's more crossover if you differentiate that from an SUV. Yeah. Um, but until I can see it in person, I, I can't quite work out how high riding it is. It's definitely mm-hmm. a bit high riding. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit coupe at the back. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it'd be really interesting to see because 
you know, we all know that hatchbacks are still massively important and mm. can Citroen make a proper dent in it? I know they've said it's massively important to their European sales. Okay. Um, so, yeah, time will tell. Very cool. Thanks very much. Right, if you have any feedback or correspondence from uh, the pod, you can find us at autocar at haymarket.com on the email. If you want to tweet us, you can do that at autocar underscore official. And of course, we're at autocar.co.uk, YouTube, and in all good news agents and some mediocre news agents every single Wednesday since 1895. Episode Zero is the awards show, the Autocar 2020 awards sponsored by Instavolt. And there are, well, there's loads to get for on it. There's, to get, there's loads to get through, isn't there? Because our awards are a bit different, aren't they? Whereas, it's, whereas we also contribute to the car of the year, but our own awards are not just about cars, but people buy them. I, I quite like that, don't you? Yeah, I, I don't know, I'm biased, but I love it because there's so many awards out there that just celebrate cars, and of course we do that too, but it's so great to celebrate those people behind the cars, yeah. you know, the, they're the brilliant minds that are creating what we're all celebrating and talking about all the time, so yeah, it always feels like a really special event to me. Yeah, I think so, and, and certainly when we give out the awards, like I suppose when we gave um, Akio Toyota the Italian trophy, yeah, and he so took cool. it in Japan, and he just was so—he <laughs> seemed so genuinely chuffed to me. I think, which I thought was really nice. It seemed people seemed genuinely touched by it, which I, I like a lot. Yeah, I um, was talking to a winner that I won't name yet um, recently, and the first thing he wanted to talk about was just how thrilled he was to have won it. And you know, he looked at the previous winners and said that they're, they're all top notch, and he was proud to be one of them. And you know, w- couldn't wait to receive his physical award. So you know, it's really heartening to hear people yeah. like that who are so senior and so impressive in what they do. That's cool. So there are 21 in total, um, and uh, not to put a final point on it, we would be here all day if we run through them in huge depth. So I'm going to run through some of them in uh, lighter detail, and then we'll go into real detail on what we think is the sort of headline three, I think that's probably the best way, isn't it? So there are some car awards. There are four game changers, which are for cars that offer something new in their class or perhaps just in the market completely. And they are the Polestar 1, Ford Puma, Aston Martin DBX and Porsche Taycan. There is a Reader's Champion Award voted for by you and other autocar readers, and that is the McLaren F1. I can't quite remember what the criteria <laughs> were for that this year. but It's the F1. The why, it's yeah. the F1. Why not? Don't yeah, question exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, um, there is a used car award, and that has gone to the Mercedes-Benz A-Class. And then also, uh, every year we run a couple of sort of driver's car contests. We run, run in, one in the summer, we run for affordable cars, and that was won by the Mazda MX-5 last year. And then Britain's best driver's car, which is something we've been doing, we call it handling day uh, internally, which we've been doing for like 25, 26 years, something like that. But it, a lot of mags do these you know, car of the year things, but this is, you know, this is the original one. And that was the Aerial Atom this year, which is also in the autocar road test, which uh, we've been running since 1928. I mean, not personally, but you know, the autocar road test has <laughs> established that old. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I do feel it. Uh, the, five, the only five-star car we've had this year, which is, again, the Aerial Atom. So there's only one or two, usually two or three, five-star road test cars a year. It's a bit of a prestigious thing. So anyway, the Aerial Atom picks that up, as well as Britain's best driver's car. So a good year for them. Uh, the Innovation Award is won by Origo, who do self-driving autonomous vehicles. They kind of specialise in the last mile thing, don't they, which is the sort of focus of autonomy at the minute, I think. Yeah, it feels like that's how it's going to get off the ground um, for the first few years, at least. Mm. And then we move on to 
our People Centric Awards. So there are four outstanding UK leaders. They are David Peel of Peugeot, Richard Harrison of SEAT, Stephen Norman from Vauxhall, who has turned around Vauxhall very quickly, and Dick Bennett's from BMW WSR, which also gives us our motorsport hero, who is the BTCC's Colin Turkington. And then moving on to the design hero, which is uh, the man you mentioned a minute ago, Ico <laughs> Maida from Mazda, who is doing terrific things. They make unbelievably good-looking cars, don't they? Yeah, I mean, you just have to admire them for not doing what everyone else is doing. You know, they've tried to remove as many lines as possible. They talk a lot about you know, light reflecting off those curves, and it just look original. And I think mm. actually, it's quite hard to be original in this space. Yeah, somebody I remember somebody. I don't know if this. I don't know if this holds true across the industry. Somebody said the thing about the Beatles is not the, the fact that they chose spectacular, complicated tunes. They had they had quite simple tunes, but they were loads. Of, the skill is doing so many of them and all being so distinctive. And the Mazda kind of feels like that. You know, it's not it's not overcomplicated, is it? But it's really it's really beautifully, elegantly, simply done. They just make. I don't yeah. know, they just make good-looking cars in a way that other people, with an elegance. But yeah, and that that's the thing, don't. I mean, the key word he used to me was simplicity, but he said it's not just simplicity, you also want beauty, mm. and, you know, and so it's sort of a really fine line of, of beauty, elegance, alongside the simplicity, and, you know, they, they talk a lot about it um, reflecting Japanese traditions, so it's, you know, it's really coming from this sort of rich cultural heritage, so, yeah, it's really interesting, he's a yeah. great guy to talk to. Good, yeah, well deserved, I think. Uh, the Mundy Award for Engineering this year goes to Frank Welsh from Volkswagen. He is the research and development boss there who has most recently overseen, of course, the ID3, which uh, brings us to the Lifetime Achievement Award, which is for Peter Horbury, talking about designers who make great-looking cars. Peter Horbury is currently at Geely. He was Autocar's Designer of the Year in 1998, revived Volvo in the early 90s, spent loads of time at Ford, He's just made some great-looking cars, hasn't he, as well? He's really gone through, especially that early 90s revival of Volvo, yeah. I think. It's very good. It's so cool really when I see cool him on the road now. But, yeah, he's, when you look at his portfolio, it is truly impressive. So that leads us to the Headline 3 Awards, I think. Do you want to start with the Editor's Award? Yes, let's go for it. So this year's Editor's Award goes to Adrian Hallmark, who is the CEO of Bentley, he joined from Jaguar Land Rover in 2018 and he quickly turned Bentley round. So 2018 it was in the red and by 2019 it was in the black. Um, and in the first quarter of this year they made around £48 billion profit, which is actually a record performance for the company. Um, it would be remiss not to mention the, the recent job losses announced, which um, obviously there's been quite a few of these in the industry because of coronavirus. Um, but you can only wonder how much worse it could have been if, if Adrian hadn't got it into the shape he yeah. had before that. Um, so we caught up with Adrian recently to talk about his award, and, and he described um, what he felt when he joined Bentley. So um, he said, I've never seen anything like it. It was a self-made recession. The company had been through four years of investment in a new generation of cars with a new continental family. It was a radical overhaul. Every nut, bolt and washer was changed with no carryover. Now, obviously, we're all now pretty familiar with the Continental GT, but at that time, ended up being quite delayed because there were mm. so many issues with it. I think, I think I read 993 issues, which is remarkable. So he said that that resulted in like a major logjam. Um, and then, of course, at the same time, it was when all these WLTP regulations were starting to come into play, which um, most you know messed up a lot of the industry. And he he sort of said that they hadn't been adequately planned for at Bentley, so that 
that sort of... Oh, um, really? So yeah. that caused even more... It's a double more, whammy. A double whammy, yeah. So it really wasn't an easy landscape that he turned around, but that's exactly what he did, and, um, and we're certain he'll be doing the same from this year's Ample Challenges. So that is why he's recipient of this year's Autocart Editors Award. Super. Congratulations. Uh, what, yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. Uh, what I thought was interesting, having a read through some of the, some of the quotes from his interview as well, he said that as... Didn't he call? Didn't he call everybody from the in anybody from the company together in sort of four different groups of a, a thousand or so, and then talk to them and say, look, you know, these are the issues we're going to sort it. Please don't, you know, what I'm going to tell you, don't let it leave this room. Did it? And yeah, that that rings a bell. And he just to get everyone on board, and that he actually did. And you know, from the times I met him, he is very good company, and you can truly believe that he could convince, you know, a full staff to come on board with him yeah. and and yeah so yeah really inspiring yeah it's tremendous leadership isn't it yeah okay let's move on to the sturmey award which uh this award invokes the name of henry sturmey the man who invented autocar 125 years ago uh this november i think so that should be quite quite a bash in november yeah let's hope so, so he saw the potential of cars back in 1895 when there were fewer of fewer than 100 of them in the country. So today's Sturmey Award recognises an individual who we believe has brought the highest technical standards to his or her area of the industry. And this year, we've awarded that to Jerry McGovern, who is the Land Rover Chief Creative Officer. His most recent project is arguably the most difficult Land Rover model <laughs> to replace since yes, I agree. I suppose, which is the new, <laughs> which is the new Defender. And we spent quite a lot of time with it, haven't we? And I, uh, it's, I think it's a tremendous thing. It's a, tr- it's a tremendously impressive and capable vehicle. Moreover, I think they've probably got it right, haven't they? They've, you know, when you when you think of what what could it have been, what could it not have been? When did the last Defender roll off the line? 2015, 16? I think it was the beginning of 2016. Yeah. So, and even at that point, we hadn't seen the replacement, had we? And they were still no. talking about exactly <laughs> what it should be exactly what it should look like exactly what it would have to do and they've got it through to the now and i think they've nailed it really is the is the, is the short of it so and also jerry has overseen the recreation of the um range rover range when you look at a new range rover from evoke all the way through to the big one and you look at an original i think you can see they're from the same lineage can't you really when they're 50 years old but they, they look while they look fresh they are not you know, that you can see that they are a development of that original car, but not retro in any That's way either. True. So, so, and he's an interesting character, Jerry. He's um, from Coventry, so he grew up in in Coventry in the sort of post-war era when it was be- being rebuilt with some quite modernist and brutalist architecture, which I think has influenced him quite a lot. And uh, he acknowledges that he's not always the world's easiest bloke to work alongside. Um, I'm, not abs- I'm absolutely not anti-engineering, he insists. Far from it, my counterpart, Nick Rogers, is a mate. But engineers love it if you give them something they already know how to do. So the job is to make it perfect. But creating new cars, he says, isn't about that. So he would rather do something... Difficult's the wrong word, but, you know, something... Challenging. Something, yeah, something challenging. Yeah, as he says, we've got an advanced group in our department whose job is to search for new design-enabling technology. So slimmer lamps, new materials, flush glazing, new metal pressing techniques, intuitive stuff in the cabin, and to be fair, the new Defender does finally have a really good infotainment system yeah, for the first does. time in a JLR for... And it's rolling out, out, isn't it, across yeah, the Yeah, it's rolling it. out, so... 
Yeah, so they're taking advantage of things, he says, that make the best new models. So our very large congratulations to Jerry McGovern on the Sturmey Award 2020. And that leads us on to the final award, which is the big one, is it? The big one. Um, this is the Isagonis Trophy. It invokes the name of one of Britain's and the world's greatest car visionaries, Sir Alec Isagonis, immortal in all car history as the inventor of the Mini. Isagonis embodied originality, creativity and courage of, of the highest order. He set a standard of achievement anyone at the top of the car business would do well to emulate today. Autocar's Isagonis Trophy recognises extraordinary achievements by those at the top who dare to steer an industry that employs over 5% of the developed world's working population and spends hundreds of billions on R&D across the world. This year, the award goes to Volvo's Hawken Samuelson. Since becoming chief executive eight years ago, Volvo has doubled its car sales to 700,000 units annually, raised its brand image to match Audi, BMW, Merck, restored its grip on the US market by opening a factory there, made big inroads in China, no doubt thanks to being owned by Geely, and expects its car range to comprise half um, of pure EV models by 2025. That's a lot, isn't it? That is a lot. That's Especially impressive. for a company that <laughs> has found itself inadvertently an SUV company, which it never quite intended to sell more than half of its models as SUVs, and it's suddenly, yeah, its electrification rollout is... Yeah, really impressive. So we caught up with Hawken recently. Actually, Steve Crockley, our editor-in-chief, caught up with Hawken recently to discuss his success. This is what he had to say. I think the absolute most uh, central is that we have the best uh, product program ever. And if you look into the products, it's, of course, uh, new technology coming into the product. But even more important in the eyes of the customer and then how the car cars are perceived, I would rank design. Ten years ago, people, uh, we asked the customers what is really the most important when you choose a car. And then the answer was often quality or fuel consumption. If you ask them that today, they uh, answer design, styling. It should look great. And Volvos uh, were not the most attractive cars 10 years ago. I think we can um, admit that now. We didn't say, say that 10 years ago. We can say that now. <laughs> and now, now Volvos really look great. Second is we uh, regain momentum in US. We were, um, I remember, some five years ago, people were almost speculating, will we leave US and so on? I mean, dealers quite frankly told me, how do you expect us to invest in the brand when you are not investing into a factory in America? And then, of course, by being uh, owned by Geely, we got also very premium access to the Chinese market and grew very rapidly and invested into factories in China as well. So global expansion, great trucks, uh, trucks, now is my old history, great uh, cars uh, um, is of course um, the reason for, for this fast growth. I mean, if you want to be a great company, I think the last thing you should say is uh, 10 years time we want to have a double profitability. It doesn't create any energy or any motivation. You just have to go into and say, what do I do tomorrow? How can I improve the company? We need to have a better cars. We need to build a factory. We need to do that and that and secure that that will be done uh, because actions and how things are 
done are really the foundation for the result. When I came in really I remember one of my first reflections was uh, that uh, we had then stressed since long that uh, Volvo as a small car play player has to be premium. I mean, we can never be successful as a mass brand, we need to be premium. Uh, but we really then, I think, did too much of benchmarking and copying. So my first uh, uh, question was, uh, how about safety? And, and I mean, why aren't we using that? Isn't that a good value? And then, then often the people said, ah, but that everybody's safe now and uh, now we need to be premium, which uh, you will never be premium if you are more or less at the end uh, trying to do what others already have uh, done. So uh, Volvo had to be premium by defining its own values for the premiumness. And, and uh, that is, uh, I think, if you compare with the Germans, who, who are, of course, very successful, they have captured certain premium attributes. I mean, if it's uh, technology as a success factor, I mean, that's Audi. If it's driving uh, dynamics as success factor, it's BMW. And if it's more premium quality, prestige, it's of course Mercedes. So Volvo need to define something different and, and, and I think it's the answer we define then is Volvo should protect what's important for you, much more human-centric. I think society moved in our direction and we defined a really a Volvo premium attributes, looking into sustainability, what do we do? How do we produce our batteries? Uh, whom do we work with? Uh, securing a CO2 neutral battery production. How can we faster electrify our cars? Those are the things that are key for growth. Electric cars are really attractive. First, what we already talked about, sustainability, and, and, and so is something that is important for people. So that makes our electric car more attractive. But then you have the whole driving experience in electric car. Very, very difficult to find any drawbacks with that. It's, it's a superior experience driving. And the, yeah. the, the thing we need to improve is the range. The day when you really have a range, so you can go anywhere in a day, eight hours drive or something, and then, and then you stop for night, you still need to charge your own body, then you can charge the car. But uh, right now it's, it's still too short, you know? but it will develop very rapidly. And uh, I think five years from now, I mean, all experts say the range will probably almost be double. If you go back a bit, uh, we very early, maybe five years ago, discussed how, how we're going to electrify, do we need a hybrid? Uh, but we realized also we need all electric cars. And then of course you come into the discussion, should we just uh, propel our Volvos electric, put in electric motors instead of combustion engines and uh, you create an uh, just car with an electric motor, which might not be enough and there I don't want to mention any names, but I mean <laughs> there are some who, who have tried to just put in an electric motor and that is yeah. still not quite like a Tesla. So by being a modern progressive electric car requires maybe a brand of its own. And then we said, okay, let's 
play safe here. Let's create also an all-electric brand in parallel to Volvo. Polestar can, uh, even if they have the same technology, of course, be a bit more bold. So they are pure, pure by, by being going all the way in, electric only. And they are uh, progressive. They, they should be not just when it comes to electrification, but new concept first to have Android, there will more to come. And then performance, they should be deliver a bit more. And it's not just a horsepower or, or torque, it's also other type of performance. They should, uh, could go away higher in, in pricing power as well. That was the idea with Polestar. And then Volvo with a very defined image, you should not move that, that is where it is. But uh, of course, with the same technology, you could create a car uh, for higher volumes. Uh, say if it's and, and and then of course yearly all the way down for uh, really yeah. low low price high volumes maybe emerging markets but link and co is really a, a ideal brand for global expansion into higher lower price segments a higher volume and volvo staying where it is so i think the idea is then to have very clear brand identity and, and uh, very little overlap and then very little cannibalization between, between the brands. I am not uh, driven by uh, results and, and uh, objectives and, and measuring objectives and results because I think results are exactly uh, as the word says, a result. It, it is a result of something else. So I'm always much more concentrated on why are we doing this uh, and, and really providing clarity about purpose and how it should work, I think is key to, uh, that's probably my way of, of uh, my motto for leadership. It's not this simplified. I don't care how you do it, guys, but five years from now, we should have doubled our profitability. I, very few people get enthusiastic about that. I think you create the energy in a company by talking about why do we do this? How could we do this? How could we be better than competition? Tell, tell me that and I have a good discussion around that. And then result will come. So some really interesting points there from Hawken. Um, what, so what do you think of Polestar? You've driven the Polestar one, haven't you? Yeah, I've spent a bit of time. Yeah, I've spent a bit of time on it. I think it's, I think it's cool. I think it's really interesting. And there's some really geeky engineering bits. I mean, Hawken was talking about Polestar being able to do some things that Volvo necessarily wouldn't. And there are some really geeky driver's car bits in the Polestar one. You know, they've used these really trick passive damp adjustable dampers and things like that just because the engineers go, yeah, we, we just we just wanted to. <laughs> so we did. And I don't. So, it's, so I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting as time goes on, how Polestar will influence Volvo and vice versa, and maybe also uh, Link and Co as well, which is um, part, of the, part of the Geely group as well. You spent some time with them, haven't you? Yeah, Link and Co. So, yeah, they're part of the Geely Group. At the moment, as far as I understand it, they're building them in China, but it's very much a brand that they want to bring to Europe. You know, there's like a few Chinese brands that really want to break into Europe, and until now, they've always struggled. Mm. Um, and Link and Co. is one of them, and it it will share a platform with like your Volvos, 
Um, and I've driven a prototype of the O2, which is like a compact SUV on some very, very smooth Chinese yeah. roads. And, you know, it's like anything of that size, it's fine. You know, it's never going to set your heart on yeah. fire. But, um, you know, it's pretty decent and pretty good quality, which I think is often a question mark, mm. fairly or not, over Chinese-made yeah. cars. And it's, so it's interesting, you know, and I think Hawken's role in the grid, because there, there was a time, I think, when people were saying, well, is he going to retire from Volvo or whatever? But as Polestar grows and Link and Co comes to Europe more, I wonder if his, if his influence will, you know, will grow even further before he, before he does retire. It would be a really interesting time for that group over the next few years when it, as they become one of the one of the sort of leading premium automotive groups, I suppose, when they have when they have cars in every single you know every segment. Yeah, so, it's an absolute yeah. giant. So congratulations to Hawken and in fact all of our winners. That is for the highlights of this year's 2020 Auto Car Awards. One last shout out then: if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at autocar at haymarket.com. You can find us at autocar.co.uk. If you want to get in touch on Twitter, we're at autocar underscore. Official from me, Matt Pryor. And me, Rachel Burgess. (laughs) Thanks very much. We'll see you for episode one of whatever we decide to call the Autocar Podcast. Is that right? I think so. What do you think? I think it's fine.